brought your Bible with you, I would invite you to open it with me to the letter of James, um, to the fifth chapter as we continue this series on, uh, on prayer. I'm going to do another message next Sunday and one to follow, and then we'll, we'll shift to working through a, a book of the Bible. As you're finding the book of James, let me provide you just a little bit of background. Uh, of course, James is the writer and one of the 12, um, the half-brother of Jesus, he's referred to as James the Just. He was uh, an apostle who uh, was passionate about justice, and he also developed a, a nickname of Camel Knees. Uh, historically, they say that James had flattened knees, and on his knees there were calluses, which uh, was an indication of the time that he spent with God in prayer. I think it's also interesting uh, if you kind of just provide a little spiritual background on James. Um, the Bible is pretty clear in John chapter 7, verse 5, that James and his brothers did not believe in Jesus. And that's a reference referring to they did not believe that he was the Messiah. In Mark chapter 3, verse 21, it says that he, uh, Jesus' family, he's referring to his brothers, and, uh, that they, it says they thought he was out of his mind. They considered him a little crazy. If you had a brother and you were growing up with and you were out playing on the jungle gyms and you were just hanging out with each other and your brother began to say some things to you about power and that Joseph, his real father, was God, and that pretty soon he was going to declare his messiahship openly, and you, you might have some strange ideas about your own brother, that he had a messiah complex. So his family doesn't believe in him. Certainly, uh, we know James does not believe that Jesus is the messiah. Some years later, when Paul, after he's converted... And he writes about this in Galatians chapter 1. He goes to Jerusalem, and when he's there, the Bible says that he spends 15 days with Cephas, with Peter, and he said he saw no one else except for James, the brother of Jesus. And at that time, James has become the leader of the Jerusalem church. We also know from uh, Josephus, a Jewish historian, that Jesus or James was also martyred for his faith. History records that he was cast from the pinnacle of the temple down into a ravine that um, Jews stoned him with rocks and beat him with clubs until he died. Before he dies, he writes this letter that's in front of us. And so you have to wonder what happened for James to move from skeptic to leader of the church, willing to give his life as a martyr for his faith in Christ. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Bible records some of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, and verse 7 says that Jesus appeared personally to James. Now, you may not have believed in his brother, his half-brother being the Messiah before, but I would have liked to have heard that conversation that Jesus had with James 
after he had been raised from the dead. He becomes a strong believer, leader of the Jerusalem church. He writes this letter to Jewish Christians who had been converted, Jews who had placed their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as persecution began to increase in Jerusalem, these Jewish Christians were dispersed. They spread throughout the Mediterranean world. Many of them fled for their lives. Some of that persecution, you remember, is described in Acts chapter 8 by the hands of the apostle Paul, Saul, prior to his conversion. They left occupations. They left their homes, left friends, left their communities. They left the land that had, God had given them and had been in their families for generations. Some of them left even family members, and they're dispersed. And as you can imagine, as they were dispersed, they were experiencing some difficulties. Many of them were suffering, going through hard times, still being persecuted, just struggling in all kinds of ways. And so James writes this letter, and he sends it. It was a circular letter. And as groups of believers meeting in house churches spread throughout the world as they read this, you can be sure that they were copying the letter and keeping a copy and spreading other copies of that to encourage believers going through difficult times. He's encouraging them to hold on to their faith. Faith is a prominent theme in the book of James. And as he writes... There is a, unlike some of the other epistles of Paul or of John, there's not really an outline in the book of James, but there's this rapid fires of successes, admonitions, 54 admonitions in the book of James. Things like admonitions to count it all joy when you're suffering, admonitions about the tongue and controlling what you say, uh, admonitions about doubt, admonitions about depending upon your wealth, admonitions about treating people um, partially based upon their income status, and just all of these admonitions through the book of James. I would encourage you to read it on your own. And then what I want us to look at this morning, and at the very end of this letter, in chapter 5, he closes. So all of these successions, uh, successive admonitions to them on all of these practical issues, then he closes. This is the summary, and the conclusion is that your faith is best demonstrated by prayer. That no matter what season of life that you are going through, faith is best demonstrated through prayer. So I invite you to read with me James chapter 5, starting at verse 13. This is the summary. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful, happy? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. 
Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. For the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Then he provides this example of power through prayer. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. And ask that you pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the witness of your spirit. We ask you now to control our thoughts, capture our attention and our imagination, and speak through your word for your glory and for your purposes to be realized in our lives more and more through prayer. We ask you this in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you went out this week, uh, Thursday, almost 80 degrees, 76, 77 degrees, pretty pleasant, sun was shining, got up Friday morning, little above freezing, and I started wondering what, what season are we living in? What season is this? Some of you this morning would say that you are going through a particular season in your life. A season that God is using to test you. A season that you are going through and God is testing your faith in him. What are the circumstances that you're facing? Perhaps some changes or some changes have been made and now you're trying to figure out how to adapt, how to adjust to those changes, testing your faith in God. What comes to mind? Anything? I was thinking about us as a church family. This past week, there are many members of our own church family who are going through seasons in their lives. Several surgeries this week, a neck surgery, heart calf. Some families found out they're expecting. Some young people are trying to figure out what the next steps are for them as they think about the future. Another young couple is preparing, getting excited about their upcoming wedding. All kinds of seasons. Mrs. Hall, Miss Edna lost Charles after... 71 years of marriage, certainly adapting to a new season in her life. In the text, James mentions some seasons, all of which are common to every one of us. Some of these seasons that we experience may be short in duration, or some seasons may be very long, but we all go through them. It's part of the life process in verse 14 look at these seasons have your if you have your bible verse 14 seasons of suffering or seasons of trouble verse 14 also seasons of cheerfulness and joy and happiness verse 15 seasons of sickness when you've received a diagnosis with some serious news verse 16 seasons of sin when we're 
facing the ongoing realities of struggling with sin. If you think about these seasons that James lists here, they're pretty encompassing, all-encompassing. They cover every facet of life. The conclusion to this letter that he writes to these suffering Christians is whatever season that you are in, your faith is best demonstrated in God through prayer. Every verse is rooted in prayer. As you read and you scan through these verses, individuals are praying, elders of the church are praying, friends are praying, Elijah is praying. Prayer was the dominant characteristic of the life of the first Christians. In the early church, they were devoted to the ministry of prayer. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, Luke records that they devoted themselves, and that word devotion is in present tense, they devoted and they continued and they continued. They devoted themselves continually to doctrine, to the study of God's word, to fellowship, being together as brothers and sisters in Christ, to the breaking of bread, getting together and having meals with one another. And they were continually devoting themselves to the ministry of prayer. Prayers, it says, plural, which means they were praying with each other. Let me ask you a question. Just pause there. How often do you pray with other believers? People that you attend church with, people that you share life with, how often do you pray with them? And here's what it's important to understand is that God works through the ministry of prayer. Prayer is communion with God, spending time with God. Getting to know God is probably the biggest outcome, the biggest result of spending time in communion with him through prayer. We get to know God. We will never become like the one that we're trying, that he's working to conform us to until we spend time with him and get to know him. And so in the time that we have together, I want to walk through these seasons with you. Verse 13, what do you do? How do you respond when you're going through suffering? What is your response when you're going through trouble? The word can also be translated when you're afflicted, when calamity visits you. What is your response? It's the same word that Paul uses for hardships. Some of you are in a season of trouble this morning. You're going through some difficult trial, some kind of experience, and it's painful. What do you do? Do you rail at God? Do you curse? Do you blame other people? Do you cry? Do you withdraw? What do you do when trouble comes to visit you? James, earlier in chapter 1, verse 3 says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when trouble comes. How many of you are pretty good at that? I'm still a work in progress. Count it all joy when trouble comes, when trials, when tests set in. Count it all joy. And now he says, not only count it all joy when trouble comes, but he says, and pray. Why? Because genuine, genuine faith, when that muscle of faith is tested, it doesn't collapse, but it grows stronger. 
which is what he says earlier in chapter 1, verses in three, one in, or to verse 2 and 3. Count it all joy, knowing that when you're tested, when these trials, these difficulties come, God is working in you to produce patience and endurance. So when it happens, when trouble comes, not, not if it happens, but when trouble comes, James is writing to these believers and he's saying, pray. Cry out to God, God, I need you. I need your help. I need your perspective on this. Pray the Psalms. Pray as the Apostle Paul prayed. Pray the prayers of Jesus that are in the Gospels. Our first response in trouble is to turn to God. Not my friends, not my spouse, not my mother, not a coworker, my best friend. My first response is to pray. Hebrews 4 says, seeing then that we have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, hold fast to your profession or confession. Hold fast to your faith. That's the message. And I would add, prayer does not necessarily remove the trouble. Have you found that to be true? You have a trouble, you're suffering, and so you pray and you ask God, and then boom, it just vanishes, it disappears, right? No. What happens? God produces strength. God begins to work in us and produces transformation, bringing himself glory, working for our good. Any of you in trouble this morning? Any of you suffering, going through something? He says, pray. And then look, the second thing is, and this is very intriguing to me, any of you merry, any of you happy, are any of you cheerful this morning? What does he say? Then sing songs, sing to the Lord, worship him, commune with God. Merry, happy, cheerful, it's the same word that Paul uses in Acts chapter 27. He's out on a ship with some sailors and they're Drifting through the sea, this heavy storm sets in, winds begin to blow and hurl. They cast things off of the ship and they're in despair, fearing their lives. And then Paul says to those men on the ship with him, brothers, we're about to be shipwrecked. And he tells them, be of good cheer. It's the same word, be happy, be cheerful, be joyful. Why? Well, he goes on some, because we're not going to die. So that's always good to hear. James is saying the same thing. If you're in trouble, pray. If you're happy, sing songs of praise. Commune with God and worship him. You say, well, that seems pretty obvious. Pastor Charlie, things are easy when I'm happy, when I'm full of joy. It's pretty easy to sing songs. It's pretty easy to worship God. Pretty easy to pray to God when things are going well. Oh, really? Really? Is that what you think? Let me ask you, when you are happy, when things are joyful in your life, when things are at ease and cheerful and everything seems to be lining up just right, is that when you are more inclined to praise the Lord and worship him and pray and seek him? Or when you're happy and joyful, and cheerful, and success is coming. See, I think we're more in danger to forget God during those times, 
to take God for granted, to neglect prayer, to neglect worship, to neglect singing unto the Lord. I think we're in danger of spiritually forgetting God and falling asleep. The choking out of our spiritual life, the choking out of our faith and our dependence upon God usually comes when things are going well. When we're at ease, when there's riches and pleasures, Jesus said, many of us will walk with God and will start out with faith, but after a time, our faith is choked out sometimes because of riches and promotions and pleasures. James exhorts when you're happy, when you're cheerful, when things are going good, be on guard. Sing songs of praise. Remember God, remember to worship God, remember to pray. I found that to be true in my own life. When everything is going great and things are at ease and there's more money than there's month and when I'm healthy and feeling good and, and the criticisms are low for that week, my inclination is to depend upon him less, to pray less, to praise him less. I spoke to a group of pastors this past Monday and I chose to speak to them on the subject of pastoral criticism and my message to them was, thank God, brothers. Thank God for pastoral criticism. While it feels unpleasant and you probably were never trained for it, you never prepared for it, it's a reality that you're going to encounter. And thank God for it. So while it feels unpleasant, it belongs to God's sanctifying process in your life. Spurgeon said to preachers regarding criticism, brothers, when we're criticized, be thankful they don't know really how sinful and bad we truly are. The fact is, the best seasons of prayer and praise and singing are usually born out of suffering and trouble, not when things are going good. Late one evening, two prisoners were brought to jail and the other inmates perked up and looked out of their cells to see who these two prisoners were. And then they listened to the familiar beatings and floggings that was customary, the normal Roman protocol when prisoners were arrested. And so there was nothing uncommon, nothing unusual about that. But in the midnight hour, something quite unexpected began to occur. Something that was abnormal as they heard Paul and Silas singing Worshiping the Lord, their praise had an effect upon those around them. If you fast forward later, even the Philippian jailer, this jailer and his whole household were converted because of the worship, the praise, the communion that Paul and Silas demonstrated during that difficult time of their life. James is writing to believers, when you are in trouble, when you're suffering, pray. And when you're happy, sing praise. Stay focused on God. Don't forget him during those moments. And then he says, when you've received this serious diagnosis and you're told that you're sick, that you're very ill, God is saying to us, do not carry that news. Do not carry that burden all by yourself. 
Instead, he says in verse 14, pick up the cell phone and call for the elders of your church family and let them come and pray over you and anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. How often are we being obedient to that admonition? A few years ago, this verse was tested. And I, I remember growing up, my faith tradition was not to call for the elders of the church and to anoint with oil. That's not the way I was raised. But I remember time after time after time studying, reading through the book of James, and I would read this verse, and it would always stir me up. It would always trouble, and I begin to have thoughts and questions. Why don't we do this? Is it out of fear? It's not necessary. As for the Pentecostals, we don't believe in that kind of thing. What kind of thing? That God honors faith? We have all kinds of symbols of our faith, right? Do we not? Baptism is a symbol of faith. Does any of us here, well, we should, that's not really necessary. That, that water is not going to wash away any sin. It's not regenerative. And by the way, we don't really believe that the bread and the cup that we take is the Eucharist. We don't really believe that we're drinking blood and eating flesh. It's just a symbol. So let us just dispense of that. Why do we just write this off? Years ago, I went to the ophthalmologist for a routine check-in, check-up, and they ran some tests, and I had a problem with my retina. And I was diagnosed, my left eye, with chronic central serous. I have a blind spot in the middle of my left eye. And I didn't know I had it because the right eye was compensating for it. And when they began to run some tests and I would close my right eye and then thinking about it, then I'd really begin to notice it. And I was told it was chronic central serous, chronic because it could get better or it could get worse. They don't really know what causes the problem with the retina. And so I obviously wanted to get better. <laughs> and so the following Sunday at the end of the service, and it had become a practice in our congregation, I called for the elders at the end of the service and asked if they would come forward before my church family and pray for me and anoint, they didn't anoint my eye with oil, but they anointed me with oil and prayed prayers of faith and the congregation prayed and prayed for my healing. A few months later, I returned for a follow-up exam and after the test was revealed, what do you think were the results? How many of you think that it went away? It was chronic. Anybody think that? How many of you think it just stayed the same? Well, the test showed that it had greatly improved, but it hadn't gone away. Well, thank, praise the Lord. Amen. But it's still there, and I continue to pray, and my prayer is, God, whatever you intend is okay with me. I'd like to improve. I'd like for that blind spot to heal, and God, I know that you can heal it, and so I continue to pray, and God, whatever you intend is okay with me. If you choose to improve it and heal it, then so be it, and then God, if it gets worse, then, then that's up to you as well, but I continue to pray and trust the Lord. 
James is saying when you're sick, some serious diagnosis has come, ask others to pray with you. Demonstrate faith. Anointing with oil is a demonstration of faith. God always honors faith. And I want you to notice the last part of verse 15. It's very, very interesting. And if the sick person has committed sins, he will be forgiven. That's associated with sickness and praying for healing. What does that mean? Well, the explanation was the Jewish Christians in the first century, had a, and this even goes back to the Old Testament, they had a strong cause and effect understanding regarding sickness and sin. They believed that all sickness was a result of some kind of sin in your life. Remember, even Job, when he became so sick and so ill, some of his friends said, well, Job, there's sin in your life. It was a cause and effect understanding. Another example in the Gospel of John, John chapter 9, when the little child was born, do you remember? With a physical defect, that little child was born blind. And so the disciples asked, Lord, why was this child born? Why was he born blind? Did the child sin or did the parents sin? You remember that? Cause and effect. Why, why did this defect happen? They believed that a child could sin in the womb. Did the child sin in the womb before he was born? As a result, he was blind? Or did the parents sin? And so God was punishing the parents because of their sin by the child being born blind. Cause and effect. That's what they thought. Do any of you think that? If you do, you don't know God. You don't really know God. Do you remember what Jesus, how he responded to the question? He said, neither. Neither the infant sinned in the womb, neither did the parents sin to cause this, but he said, Jesus clarifies and corrects their understanding. This, they're thinking, rather this is not because of sin, but God will work through this for his glory. The idea was that whatever and whenever a Jewish Christian or believer was sick, the first person they turned to wasn't the, wasn't the medical person. In fact, and there's an Old Testament, there's constant um, rebukes when God's people turn to medicine first instead of first turning to God. Thank God for doctors and physicians and medicines and surgeries and the miraculous things they can do with prosthetics and joint replacement. Just all of it. Really, I think that's it's a miracle. And we don't give God the credit and the glory for what he's able to do today through medicine. But let me ask you, is your first response when you're sick to turn to medicine or to turn to God? A Jewish person, when they were sick, the first person they turned to wasn't their doctor. The first person they turned to was the rabbi. And the rabbi would anoint with oil and pray for healing. First would ask God or ask the person to confess their sin, which God would forgive. So James is saying both. When you're sick, pray. Confess your sins. God will forgive you. And as a demonstration, as an act of your faith in God, ask for prayer accompanied with the anointing of oil. That's the idea. That's what he's trying to get across. Listen, why don't we obey this? I just, just would you just at least... Read this verse and think about it, whether it's been part of your faith tradition or not, and just say, God, why don't we honor this verse? Why don't we obey this verse as a church family? And I just, I've determined to obey what it says, leave the results to God with a, with a commitment either way for him to receive glory.
to demonstrate faith in the body. If you're in trouble, pray. If you're happy, don't forget to sing and to praise and worship the Lord. If you're sick, as an ask, act of faith, ask for prayer, even with the anointing of oil. And finally, in verse 16, there's an exhortation as brothers and sisters in Christ together, when you're faced with ongoing sin. How many of you are faced with ongoing sin in your life? Yeah, you don't have to raise your hand. I'll just, I'll do it for all of us. <laughs> Faced with ongoing sin. And, uh, we're in good company. Remember Romans 7, Paul, the apostle Paul, he, he battles with ongoing sin. Oh, why do I keep sinning? I tell myself I'm not going to sin, do this thing anymore. And the very thing I tell myself I'm not going to do, that's the very thing I keep on doing. And why do I do it? Oh, wretched man that I am, this power of sin. He's, he's wrestling with sin in Romans 7. And so that's the exhortation. When we're faced with ongoing sin, he says, confess it and pray for each other. Confess it and pray for each other. Well, listen, that's, neither one of those are easy to obey, are they? How many, how many of you find it's not easy to pray for other people? Be honest. It's not easy to pray for other people. It's work. It demands discipline. I struggle with being disciplined in praying with other people. Do you? Pray for me. Pray for this. This, this, this prayer list. Many of you received one this morning. How many of you, be honest, when you... You're praying regularly, consistently, with discipline for the prayer lists that people provide in our church family. It's not easy. It requires discipline. I, I keep a journal, a prayer journal, and, and I write things down and keep them before me, and I have lists and categories to help me to improve, to be more disciplined in prayer. How many of you find it's real easy to confess your sins to other people? I bet there'd be even less hands go up on that one than the other one. The idea here is uh, the sin of offense. When we've wronged someone in the body of Christ, or even doesn't even have to be somebody in the body of Christ. When I or you have wronged some other person, when we've sinned against somebody else, when we've said something behind their back and tore down their character and caused people to think ill of them, when we've got all kinds of things that we do, when we've sinned against another believer that strains or has a potential to ruin the relationship how quick are we to call and that other person and meet with them and confess our sins when we've sinned against them? How well do you think you're doing on these two? Praying consistently for others, praying consistently with others, for others, and confessing your sins when you've trespassed against someone else. And let's not deceive ourselves thinking that it never happens. I try to be extremely intentional. If I have offended someone, if I have hurt someone, and even if I haven't, and I think 
they think, I think that they think that I've offended them or hurt them or upset them. I try to be very intentional to go and to say, hey, are we good? I'm sorry. I apologize. Why, why, why is it so hard for us to go to someone and say, I'm sorry? I apologize. Would you forgive me? I've sinned. To go directly to someone humbly and honestly and confess something and pray together. Listen, and uh, the best place to start at that is at home. At home with our spouse, with our own kids. For kids to ask their parents to forgive them when they've responded poorly to their parents and say, Mom, Dad, I've sinned. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have acted that way. Listen, we're commanded to forgive each other, right? But, and we're commanded in the body of Christ to always forgive. That's not even an answer. 70 times 7, we always forgive. But it would sure make things a lot easier if someone would occasionally say, I'm sorry. I can count on one hand the times in almost 40 years of ministry that anyone has ever come to me and apologized for anything. It starts at home. The message that James is conveying to these believers is whatever season you're in, trouble, joy, sickness, sin, whatever you're in, then prayer demonstrates your faith in God. And he closes with an example of the power of prayer. And you can read about Elijah in first chapter or First Kings 17 and 18. And so study that due to time, I don't have time to go through that whole story, but it regards God's power being made available as his people pray. With the remaining moments that I have, we're almost out of time. I want to just transition to some, some additional application. How do you learn to pray? How have you learned to pray? Let me go through some things very quickly of how I learned to pray. And in no way am I going through this to try to glorify myself, but as a way just to encourage you that learning to pray, I believe, is a part of the discipleship process. It's something that's learned. It's something that's developed as we grow in Christ. And it requires effort and it requires good methodology. Many of you will have a similar story. So let me go through some things. How did I first learn to pray? I first learned to pray from hearing pray from hearing other people pray. How many of that has been your experience? Every night before bed, my mom would gather with my brother and my sister and I, and she would pray. We'd heard her pray. And then second, she asked us to pray. And usually when my mother asked you to do something, it wasn't a suggestion. And so we prayed. She never taught us to memorize prayers. I never learned. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, pray the Lord the soul to take. I never learned uh, God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Never learned memorized prayers as a child. They might be okay, but she made you think. Probably would have been easier for her to let us memorize them than we'd do it than we'd done. But when you, little kid, you pray for the sun, you thank you for the birds, and you thank you for your new toy and for that Pop-Tart you had that, I mean, it's just, they go on forever. But she made us think. I learned to pray from hearing her prayer. I learned to pray from praying 
And I thought about this. I probably need to give my dad some little credit here. While he wasn't much of a church guy, and my dad didn't pray for us much when we were younger, it changed as he got older. But he did teach me a few things about prayer, like Father, Son, Holy Ghost, who grabs first gets the most. We, he would say that before meals or over the teeth, through the gums, look out stomach, here it comes. So my dad did contribute a little bit. But most of it came from my mom hearing her pray, calling on us to pray. I heard people in church pray. I heard my grandpa pray. I heard prayers. Listen to little kids' prayer. They will pray what they hear you pray. Lead, guide, direct. I heard that one a lot. God, if we've sinned, forget, you know, we, we hear, we learn theologically from praying. And so to hear it, to pray, which by the way, is exactly how the disciples learned to pray. They listened to Jesus pray, and then they said, Lord, would you teach us to do that? As I heard Jesus pray. How many of you learned your initial thoughts and memories of prayers? You heard your mom or grandfather, somebody pray, and then you remember as a kid, they asked you to pray. Probably many of you. I third learned to pray from studying scripture, from reading and studying specifically about God. And by the way, when you read the Bible, your aim is not to receive something first about you. The first goal is to, God, help me to know more about you. And so I begin to read that and understand that God was good and reliable and faithful and true, and God knows best, and he's always with me. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, if I take up the wings in the morning, draw the mortimost parts of the sea, God, you're there. Your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. Never can I be away from your presence. God is always with us. God has all power. He's dependable to help us. And so we learned who God is as we pray. And then I began to learn how God relates to me, that he sees me as his, one of his own kids, as one of his children, that I belong to him by creation, then through salvation, he adopted me into the family, that I'm a permanent heir, he'll never kick me out when I perform poorly, that he loves me and cares for me, and God, listen, God even likes us. Do you know how many people need to hear that somebody likes them, that somebody loves them, they need God, and he knows our every need even before we ask. I begin to know God more. It shaped how I pray for it. I begin to learn more from studying the Bible what God expects from me. God has some expectations. He expects to hear from us every day. He commands us to come to him. God has some expectations of his kids. Don't you as a parent? Expectations, knowing God. Jesus taught that we are to seek God, to pursue God. We do that through prayer. Getting into that room, that secret storeroom. Do you remember where he's gathered up and he's stored up treasure to give to his kids? We learn to pray from life experience. God, I need you. And I didn't really start learning that I needed God through life experience until I got a little bit older and got away from home. And as I got away from home, got on my own, and the bills started coming in, and trials, to, and things started happening, I began to realize, and I thank God that I came to my senses pretty early and realized, God, I need you in my life. 
Six, I learned to pray from studying how men and women in the Bible prayed, from studying their prayers. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we read Psalm 90, Moses. That was Moses' prayer, Psalm 90. You remember what he learned? God, I'm old, I'm frail, I'm growing weak. I've just realized that my departure is near. And so what did he pray? Lord, teach me to number my days, to number them, to make them count. From studying how Jesus prayed, John 17, from studying Paul's prayers, Colossians, Ephesians, consist of Paul's prayers, Romans. What did Paul pray? How did he pray? Next Sunday, we're going to preach from 1 Samuel on the the apparent prayer. It was the prayer of Hannah. I invite you to read it, 1 Samuel, next Sunday. I learned to pray from regular praying, from praying with other people, became more comfortable with it, and Leading prayer meetings and attending prayer meetings, we learned to pray. I learned to pray also from God pressing down upon my spirit, my heart, my mind, and life, a burden, a weight that that God just places upon you. You can't escape it. There's a burden. There's a heaviness of heart for someone someone who is lost, someone who is unsaved, someone who is not going to heaven, somebody that you care deeply about or an issue or or just got those burdens, teach us to pray. God has taught me to pray through crises. When life overwhelms, it's what James is referring to, suffering and sickness and sin. It's what Paul meant in Romans 8 for When we don't know how to pray, the Spirit intercedes and prays for us without, with with sighs and groanings which cannot be uttered. Have you ever been there in life when there was a crisis that came upon you and you were hurting so bad that you literally couldn't cry out to God? You didn't know what to say. You didn't have the breath. We learn to pray. Depend upon the work and the presence of the Holy Spirit. I've learned to pray by God's encouragement of watching God and provide answers to prayer, of watching God intervene as we pray. God hears us and answers our prayer. The answers may be no. They may be not yet. You need to wait a while. Well, prayer may be Yes. But he answers every prayer. That You know that hymn that we sing, Have Faith in God? There's one verse in there that I don't like. Have faith in God when your prayers are unanswered. I don't like that verse. We should take that out, Don. <laughs> Let me close. Are you growing, developing as a disciple in the ministry of prayer? Do you, do you view prayer as a privilege to be able to commune with the God who created you, with the God who created the universe, that he hears you personally, he relates to you that way, and you can commune with God, your creator, your savior? Or do you view prayer as a religious obligation? It's a duty. I ought to pray more. I should do. I, I know I should. 
Hillcrest, we need to realize that prayer is rooted first in the gospel. A life of prayer first begins through entering into a right relationship with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask Don and the musicians to come. If you've never, if you've never humbled yourself before God and said, God, I'm a sinner. I know I've sinned against you, and God, I'm sorry. And confess that to him and ask God by faith to save you, to forgive you, to cleanse you. You can pray that prayer this morning, and God will save you. Remove all your sins. It's, it's the gospel. God will remove all the sins of your past. God will forgive all the sins you might commit today. And God will even forgive all of the future sins that you ever commit. Why? Because the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, his shed blood on the cross, was sufficient to pay and to cover all sins. If you're here this morning and you've done something horrific and you think, oh, God can never forgive me. I've done some horrible things, Brother Charlie. I've wasted too many years. I can't all of a sudden just cry out to him now. He, how could he do that? Listen, his grace is sufficient. Far greater than our sins are his grace. God will forgive you. You can receive Christ this morning. And then for those of us who know the Lord, as you walk with Jesus and you recognize who he is and you understand what he expects from you and you realize how desperately you need him, he's always there for us to commune with him. Let's stand together. Father, we commit these moments of invitation to you and we pray that our responses would be those of faith, of trust, and obedience to you. Have your way, we ask you, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.